Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Event Mode, DAP page 89. Um, you know, Ann and I are finding these DAPIM, they're just chock full of very interesting information and halakhic concepts. Um, and we're having trouble picking and choosing what it is that we want to talk about. So I have two things here that I want to discuss. One is there's a little line here that talks about Inla Ketuba. It's quoting the Mishnah that, you know, in certain cases, she would not have claim of her Ketubah. And the Gemara uh, wants to talk about um, what's the reason why the rabbis decided that women needed a Ketubah uh, in the first place, right? It's just like one little line in here. So that she's not easy in his eyes to divorce. So essentially Ketubah's there, as a protection to a woman. It's really a prenup agreement. And the Gemara is very clear about that because otherwise it would just be too easy for him to divorce her. But this woman, the one who committed adultery and literally becomes prohibited to her husband, it's okay. Let her be easy, basically, in his eyes to divorce. And the fact that he doesn't need to pay off her ketubah means that they will get divorced uh, quickly. Because So in other words, the ketubah sort of used in a way to either encourage that people would not get divorced or that divorce should not be so easy. Or in this case, by removing the ketubah, it's saying like, we want them to actually get divorced. So this is a way of making divorce easy to do. So we're going to do Masachi Ketubah later and talk a lot more about it. But this is just something to keep in the back of your head that the ketubah is essentially a rabbinic tool uh, to sort of either maintain or not maintain a certain standard within marriage and divorce. Um, and anything you want to comment on that before I go on? Oh, go ahead. Oh, okay, great. All right. So um, the Gemara then again quotes uh, another part of the Mishnah, which says, Havlad Mamzer, right? So this was the ruling that we said we had a lot of trouble with, which is a case where, uh, well, what it's basically discussing why if she has a child with her first husband after he returns, why would that child be considered a monster? Because she technically was still married to her first husband. And before even getting into this issue at all, the Gemara is going to bring up a Mishnah in true mode and a huge Amoraic uh, machlokas about its meaning. Um, and in while it's doing a discussion of this machloket, it, it's going to come out essentially that the machlokas with the Amoraim of how to understand this Mishnah actually impacts our Mishnah's ruling on Mamzer. So I sort of want to just set this Mishnah up, and, and, and this is really what a, the bulk of the uh, uh, the bulk of what this staff actually is talking about. So Tana Rabbanan. So we learned in a Mishnah, this is a Mishnah in true mode, uh, Perak Bet Mishnah Bet, Tutu. Ein tromim min hatame al-tahor. So you are not supposed to separate truma from produce that is tame for produce that is tahor. So remember, Truma, right, which is a part of the whatever produce that you have that's given to a Kohen. Um, and before you, uh, uh, you know, separate it, it's Tevel. After you separate it, it has a certain type of Kedusha. But we know that once Truma becomes Tame, right, you're not allowed to eat it at all. And so therefore, you can't take Tame produce and say, this is what's going to be my Truma for Tahor produce. Right, the imtram, and let's say he did separate somebody separated tame produce for truma for tahor uh, produce. Bishoge truma to truma. If he did it by accident, 
will still allow that truma to be considered truma. In other words, if he didn't realize that that truma with that produce was actually tame and he did it by accident, um, he, you know, we still consider it truma. And remember, you can't eat produce until you've actually separated the truma and he can go ahead and eat the tahor, uh, the tahor produce. Okay. Um, but if he did it on purpose, it's as if he didn't do anything. So in other words, from how we understand what truma is, right, it, it, it's basically like he didn't take truma at all, and therefore he wouldn't be allowed to eat the tahor produce that's left, that's left over because he didn't take proper truma at all. So the Gemara wants to understand my loa sava lo klum. What does it mean he's done nothing? So they have two opinions here. Amar of chista loa sava lo klum. Kol ikar. So Rav Chita says it means he did nothing at all. And even that for that measure of tame produce that was designated as truma, it goes back to tevel. Like all of it is still tevel. It's like he didn't take truma at all. Rav Natan, Rav Yoshia, Rav Natan, the son of Rav Yoshia says, What it means is he's done nothing to fix to permit the, the remainder. In other words, whatever is left over, right? You, you can't do anything until new truma is taken. About truma habe, but what he did separate, we still consider to be truma, right? That 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 tummy produce is still considered to be truma. It still has some sort of sanctity to it on, on that, you know, on that del Risa level, and he's still going to have to take other truma. So what the machlokas is over is, is what happens to that for the tummy truma. According to Rafisa, nothing. It, it doesn't mean anything. It's as if you didn't take it, if you did this amazing. According to Rav Natan, yeah, it still maintains the status of truma, but it just, uh, it, it, it's, you can't do anything, you know, you have to take more truma. So then the Gemara is going to go ahead and basically try to uh, analyze each one of these, uh, of these opinions. So I'm not going to go through the analysis. I really just sort of wanted to uh, discuss sort of the, the the setup here. And and I think, and, you know, we'll see later on, like how it actually, how does it apply to our case of moms there? But, you know, I think it, it raises a very interesting question. Like what happens when a person deliberately gives a designation of holiness, right? Something to be kadosh to something that can't really be uh, or can't sort of fulfill that designation. And so Rav Chitza is going to say, it's as if you didn't do it at all. And Rav Natan is going to say, no, once you designate something kadosh, it maintains some sort of status, even though you're not really going to be able to use it the way that you are going to do. And so I think this actually is sort of a very meta discussion because I think it really, in a way, talks about like, what's the power of humans to designate something kadosh? Like, in other words, Rochisa's opinion is basically saying, if you didn't do it right, the right way, I think in a way what he's saying is that power of making something kadosh more comes from like the law itself, from the Torah itself, right? Like it, it's not fulfilling it the way the Torah met. It, there's no power for it to become kadosh. Whereas Rav Natan saying is like, that designation is actually, actually or that naming is a human power. And regardless of whether it fits the law, 
you still had the power to name it. It's going to be treated differently. You may not be able to eat it because it's tummy, but there's still some power in it. And so I think what essentially that machlokas is really about is like, where does the power of naming something kadosh come from? Rav Chista, it's going to be more from the law itself, from the Torah itself. From Rav Natan, there seems to be a certain power that's actually given to the person who does the naming. So if we're going to say there's a theme to the day, I would say it's exactly this question of to what extent uh, is there the human capacity to establish or to make changes or to prohibit, um, and to what extent is that something that's, let's say, innate in the nature of the thing. And here, and this begins in Truma, meaning that's part of this discussion, but the Gemara goes on, I'm now on Ahmed Bet, the Gemara is going to discuss it in the context of Mamzer, which is a big deal, right, to suggest to suggest, in fact, that there's a human component here. So let's see. Amrle. Now we're talking about Rav Chista and we're talking about Rabbah. And their conversation began in the discussion of Truma, but we're going to follow it now through under other circumstances. You want to say that Chazal, that the sages, I mean, they are Chazal, right? That we sages have the power to establish this kind of status haven't we already seen in the Mishnah that the that any child from either couple, meaning the wife with the first husband or the wife with the second husband, would end up being a mamzer? Avlad mamzer bishlama mamzer. It's very clear to everybody why the child from the second husband would be a mamzer if the first husband is found alive. Why is it that the Gemara, that the Mishnah rather says that the first the children from the first husband? would be a mamzer. And we established it in this like very, you know, when we first talked about it in the context of the Mishnah, we talked about it in this very complicated kind of way that if she were married to the second husband and then she went back to the first husband and then had another child. So the Gemara here says, Ishtohi, she's his wife. Meaning, yes, she has from a, unbeknownst to her, right? She has technically stepped out on him, so to speak. And then in going back to him, any future child should be simply the child of the two of them from the first husband, meaning it, it should not, there should not be any moms or status because there's no, there's no um, illicit relationship between the two of them at the very least, at the very most, I would say, you know, it's the concern of prohibiting her to go back to him because of her relationship with the second husband. But if she's allowed to go back to him, according to those opinions that say she could go back to him, then it shouldn't be an issue at all. Ishtohi v'Yisrael ma'al yehu. And in this case, right, we're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about a situation where the child should just be a regular Jew, meaning Yisrael, not a mamzer. Uh, it's an interesting status different, differentiation between, to say, we've got Kohanim, Levim, Yisraelim, and then Mamzer is not amongst Yisrael, which is, I think, a difficult thing to hear, but that is the way the Gemara is presenting it. And the question then is, you know, if that child who would be born to this woman and her first husband, right, is that child going to be permitted to marry a mamzeret or not. In this case, it would seem that he's permitted to marry a mamzeret, in which case we're saying that the rabbinic decree that that child's going to be a mamzer is going to uproot the Torah prohibition against a mamzer marrying a non-mamzer, right? Because if this rabbinically decreed mamzer can marry a uh, Torah-level mamzeret, then we're, a stat- we're allowing the rule of the rabbanan to overtake uh, or to overcome the rule, the rule of the Torah. 
Amar lei, so Rabba, sister of Chista, that Shmuel, Hachi Amar Shmuel, that Shmuel said the following, Asur bim amzeret. No, in fact, he can't marry him amzeret. Well, that explains that. We're going to say the rabbinic law does not uproot the Torah law. V'chein ki ata rabbin Amar Rabbi Yochran, Asur bim amzeret. A lot of people agree here that she that he cannot marry, again, the child from the wife having gone back to the first husband, right? That child cannot marry a mamzeret. So then technically we're going to say that he's not really a mamzer because otherwise he could marry a mamzeret. But my karele mamzer. So why do we call him a mamzer? Because the concern is that the chazal were going to be machmir, stringent, and tell him that he cannot marry a regular Jewish woman either. Now, of course, what that means is if he can't marry a mamzeret and he can't marry a Yisraeli, meaning he can't marry just a regular no special status Jewish woman, well, then in that case, we can say, okay, the sages are not uprooting that Torah law with the rabbinic law, but in the meantime, what's supposed to happen to this poor guy? Right, meaning that's that's not the Gemara's question, that's my question. So, we've got a whole lot of rabbis involved in the proof that Rav Chist is sending to Rabbi, specifically, can a court, can't a court, you know, stipulate that they're going to uproot something that's prohibited by Torah law? Meaning, isn't there, aren't there cases where we do see that? For example, if a man would inherit uh, from his wife who is a minor, meaning she's been married off by her mother or by her brother, whatever, and that marriage is technically not a Torah marriage. And yet, Based on that marriage, the husband can inherit from her. So even though it's not a Torah thing, the rabbinic decree that he can in- inherit from her is upheld. Bechame says, well, that applies from the time that she could stand up to at her at her full height, at her, the height that she's going to be at the age of maturity, meaning she may not be fully she may not yet be fully mature, but her height, she could get there first, right? And Hill says, well, no, but from the time that she enters the chuppah, meaning presumably from the time that she's married this guy, which is a really, depends how young she was, that, that the brother or the mother married her off, how much time there's going to be between the Beit Shammai position and the Beit Hill position. And Rabbi Lezer, sorry, Rabbi Lezer, Omer, el. And Rabbi Lezer says, not from the chuppah, but from when she first has marital when she first has marital relations with this husband. Meaning, and then and then she's considered a wife, meaning in every way, right? So that the husband will inherit from her, even though she was katana, and he will become impure for her, meaning if he's a Kohen, all of this is if he's a Kohen, right? That, that um, uh, not all of it is Kohen, I take it back. Uh, but if she would die, he would become impure for her, meaning he would sit shiva for her and so on, even if he were a Kohen. And if he's a Kohen, she can eat his, he can eat truma on because of him. So this is a case, and it's brought here as an example of a Torah law that is uprooted by virtue of the rabbinic law that she married this man to begin with, even though she was a katana. I think Mary goes on to really probe these different cases here, but I think that what this is why I say the theme here seems to be, you know, when we have a clash between rabbinic law and Torah law not really a clash, when we have a rabbinic law that becomes the foundation of the building up of a Torah law or not, right? Which do, which do we uphold and, and how is that acceptable, you know, ever for a rabbinic law to ever uphold 
um, uphold or be the force that uproots the Torah law. Um, it's it's not something we can solve in a day. It's the kind of thing that comes up again and again as a conundrum because nobody really is comfortable to say that rabbinic anything can trump Torah anything. I, so I think this Gemara is sort of a tension between Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat Like the rabbis recognize they've been given sort of that gift or the power of Torah Shabbat I know I'm using the word power a lot today. I mean, Torah Shabbat excuse me, that power. But what do you do when that evolves in a way that seems to be up and against uh, a the Torah Shabbat And I think that's a little bit what they're trying to tease out here and discuss. I think that's accurate. Yeah, it's a very meta daft for me today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our daft discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.